Let's pray together. God, having heard your word, we now bow before you and ask that you would give by your Holy Spirit light to our eyes to see it and our ears the ability to hear it, our minds the understanding to understand it, and our hearts the softness to receive it. We pray that you would help us so that we might receive your word and be pointed to you and your son through it. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, this summer we are in the book of Esther, and we are trying to learn about God from a book where he is never mentioned. And we're trying to hear from God in a book where he never speaks. And we're trying to see God in a book where he never makes an appearance. And yet, as we've already seen in just the first two chapters already, the invisible fingerprints of God are all throughout this book and all throughout this story. In fact, we've said together, God is the hidden hero of the book of Esther. He can't be seen, and yet he's everywhere. He can't be heard, and yet he's active and at work, much like our own world. And so, among the character that we can't see, the hero, there are some characters to this point in the story that we can see. So when the curtain has raised on the book of Esther, so far three characters have stepped on to stage. The first one was seated on a throne. We met him, King Ahasuerus. We know his Greek name to be Xerxes. And if you remember, Xerxes is the king of the Persian Empire, who at that point in history rules over what is the known world. From the edge of Pakistan all the way to the bottom of Sudan, Xerxes rules it all. And then last week, we met two more characters. We met Mordecai and his orphaned cousin slash adopted daughter Hadassah. Mordecai and Hadassah were Jews. And while many of the Jewish people had gone back to their land and gone back to Israel, for one reason or other, this remnant lived in Persia. They stayed behind in the pagan palace of Persia. And so what we read in chapter 2 was that this pretty young Jewish girl, who the text says was lovely to look at, was, as the text said, taken along with the other virgins of the empire to satisfy the lust and longings of Xerxes. And in chapter 2, we said that after one night with the king, she is made queen of Persia. And we know her as Queen Esther, Hadassah's Persian name. Now, as slimy and as laughable as Xerxes is, he's actually not the antagonist of the story. He's actually not the villain, the bad guy of the book. In fact, we haven't met the bad guy of the book yet, but we're about to in the passage we're looking at today. And as we meet him, there's two things that I think God has for us to hear today. Here's the first. We have an ancient foe who seeks to work us woe, whose craft and power is great, and who is armed with cruel hate. We have an ancient foe who seeks to work us woe, whose craft and power is great, and who is armed with cruel hate. Some of you will immediately recognize that I'm stealing those words from Martin Luther and his great hymn, but I think they are actually a perfect description for the man we meet in the passage today, this man named Haman. In fact, I learned something wonderful. Just yesterday, we had a barbecue with some friends and some neighbors in our neighborhood, and one of these friends came and told us that as she was growing up and as they celebrated Purim, which is the festival in the book of Esther, what they were doing 
do as Jewish children is every time the name of Haman is read, they'd have these rattlers and they'd rattle them so that you'd drown out this wicked man's sound. And they said that you'd give kids little pasta boxes and let them rattle. So as you're at home this week and as you read the story of Esther, rattle pasta. All the children should have that so that you drown out this wicked man's name so that it's never heard. Now, as he appears onto stage, he does so very interestingly because it comes on the heels of what happens in 2 verse 19 to 23. You can just scan down with me in your Bible. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it all. But what you'll see in verse 19 is this. Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. Now, pause there for a second. Because you're going to hear that phrase over and over and over again in the book. In fact, five times Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. And he's sitting at the king's gate. When you hear that, if you don't know better, you just picture this man who's professionally sort of loitering around the king's gate. Like he has no job to do. He's just always sort of hovering around the king's gate. But in reality, the background is back then, king's gate is sort of like when we say the White House. If I say I'm posted at the White House, you know it's not just a description of a location. It's not just a description of a spot or a geography, but rather it represents an office, meaning that Mordecai here has some kind of post within the royal administration. And being posted there, he happens to be perfectly positioned so that it just so happens That out of all the places he could be, and out of all the times he could be there, he's perfectly positioned to overhear a plot. You see, two of the king's secret service agents hate the king, and so they're guarding his room, and they conspire to kill him, to assassinate him. And it just so happens that perfectly posted, positioned Mordecai overhears this plot, tells Esther about it. Esther tells the king in the name of Mordecai. And what they do is, and this is going to be key to the story, verse 23, they record it in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. That is that Mordecai's deed of saving the king is tucked away into the annals of the history of the king, into this book of the chronicles of the king. Now, up to there, listen with me. This is something, right, for a citizen to save the king. Like if a citizen saved the life of the president, you would imagine that that would make evening news. You would imagine that that man would be honored, that that man would be rewarded in some way. And so the question here is, How is Xerxes going to reward Mordecai? I mean, literally, this man still has a pulse because Mordecai saved his life. So how is Xerxes going to reward him? So you, you begin to wonder. Maybe we'll get a feast. After all, we've had lots of feasts in the book of Esther. It started with feasts. There are more feasts coming. Maybe there's a feast coming. Or maybe we'll get another six-month party at the king's palace, like it opened in chapter 1. The king always loves a party. Or at the very least, you'd imagine that this man would be rewarded or promoted in some way. And that's exactly what you get, a promotion. Only it's not to who you'd expect. Because 3 verse 1 says this, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. We get a promotion, only it's not to who we'd expect. Mordecai has saved the king's life. You get nothing. It's a footnote in a book, locked away in a library. 
And now you get some time passes and you read that Haman is promoted to second in command. Haman. Now confession, my family has already seen the new Aladdin movie three times. All right? My wife and I saw it twice. The kids have seen it three times. So I've got Persia and Arabia and sultans and palaces and princesses in my mind. So for the children in this room, when you hear Haman, I want you thinking Jafar. You remember Jafar? The sneaky, conniving snake, the second in command, second only to the sultan, who uses the sultan whenever he can to climb up in power. That power-hungry, insecure, plotting, scheming snake, that's what you have here, Haman. He's a wicked foe. We should rattle when we hear his name. But he's not just a foe, he's an ancient foe. Hear that. Haman represents an ancient foe. What do I mean? When he walks on stage, the narrator doesn't just say, enter Haman. He says, Haman the Agagite. Now, for most of us, that just flies right over our head. But if you were one of the Jewish people who were reading this story for the very first time, you would have let out a gasp. Did he just say Agagite? You see, there's some backstory here that we need to know. And the backstory is if you flip back further back in your Bibles, you'd be in the book of Exodus. And in chapter 17, there's a story where the people of God, newly freed out of slavery in Egypt, newly formed nation, newly freed, walk into the wilderness. And the first nation to attack them is the people of the Amalekites. And they don't just attack them. They sort of sucker punch them. They come up to them. In fact, listen to this verse from Deuteronomy 25, 17. The Lord remembers what they did, and he says this. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. Meaning, they took a cheap shot on Israel. When they were weary, when they were worn out, they picked on the stragglers who were weak and lagging behind, and God would not forget. It's sort of like if someone comes and punches you from behind when you're not looking. That kind of a cheap shot is what the Amalekites did. And God says in this text, from that moment on, that the Lord would be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. He would not forget what they did to his people. From generation to generation, he would be at war with them. And so, in fulfillment of this, when the first king of Israel, a man named Saul, who happens to be a Benjaminite of the tribe of Benjamin, who happens to be the son of a man named Kish, when he becomes king, God commands that he goes to war with the Amalekites and that he's to totally destroy them for what they did to his people. He's to destroy everything. And yet, when you read the story... Saul plunders all their good sheep and all their good cattle, and more than that, he spares their king. And guess what the name of that king is? A man named Agag. So without having to do anything, here's what the narrator just did. The narrator just said, in the red corner, you've got Mordecai, who, by the way, chapter 2, verse 5 told us, is a Benjaminite of the tribe of Benjamin, Oh, by the way, more than that, is a descendant of Kish. And now in the blue corner, you've got Haman, who, by the way, is a son of Agag. 
You see, without having to say anything, this is Hatfield and McCoys. This is Montague and Capulets. This is Cowboys and Eagles without having to say a word, right? There's bad blood here. There's a rivalry here. There's, there's something that's going to happen here because you see these two men introduced in the story, and they are going to square off. And that's exactly what you get. 3 verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Listen. These two are going to be pitted against each other. What you have now is you can get a sense of just how nasty Haman was, how obnoxious, how probably disliked he was. But the clue is the king has to issue a command that everyone should bow to, to Haman. One preacher said it this way, meaning in that culture, if Haman is the highest ranking official, it would have just been instinctive to everyone to bow to Haman. Sort of like I come from Indian culture. In Indian culture, I was taught from the moment I was a kid that when an elder walks into the room, someone older, I was immediately to stand. When dad came home from work, we were supposed to stand when he walked into the room. This was just an instinctive sign of respect. Haman is so vile that the king has to issue a command to do what should be instinctively done. That everyone knows. And so the king commands that everyone in the empire should bow. Except for one man. Mordecai won't bow. Now we who are readers, we want to know why won't he bow. And, and so we make our guesses. And all kinds of guesses have been made. Maybe he's stubborn. Maybe he's bitter that he got passed up for that promotion. Some have guessed maybe that Haman was wearing an idol on his necklace and Mordecai didn't want to bow before that. We've come up with every kind of guess we could to try and figure out why won't he bow. But the narrator doesn't tell us. Instead, we now see these two men square off, and maybe we know all that we need to know. Whatever the case is, it's sort of like this. I haven't seen the new Creed II movie, but I hear that the premise and plot is basically this. You've got the son of Apollo who's going to fight the son of Ivan Drago. If you know anything about the Rocky movies, you've been told everything you need to know already. You know that this is a long-standing, ancient feud that these sons have stepped into. And so now you've been presented that a son of Saul is squared up against a son of Agag. And so you know that Haman represents not only a foe, he represents an ancient foe. This goes way back. But this is an ancient foe who seeks to work us woe. That's what Luther's saying. And he's right about this as well, because that's what you'll see. Look at verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman, like Xerxes, and perhaps like all proud hearts, seems to have a very delicate ego. It is not enough for him that he is second in command. And it's not enough for him that he is the highest official in the land. And it's not enough for him that no one save the king himself has a higher throne than his. 
It's not enough that in every room that he walks into, he is the highest ranking official and everyone must bow in the entire empire. Everyone that is except one man, Mordecai, a Jew. And the thought of not one man bowing before him floods this man's heart with fury. So that the text says that his wrath grows so great that he seeks not only to take out Mordecai, that would be too little, but the text says, but Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Meaning, it will not be enough for the enemy of God's people to take out one. The enemy of God's people launches a global attack on God's people. Hear that again. The enemy of God launches a global attack on God's people. Where can they run? Because Xerxes owns it all, to the edge of Pakistan, to the bottom of Sudan. Where will they go? And so this enemy seeks to eradicate and eliminate God's people from every corner of the face of the earth. But he's not only an ancient foe who seeks to work us woe, his craft and power is great. That's what you see as well. Look at verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people, there's a certain people, scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not in the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury." See, here's the text. Haman is preparing a holocaust. Before there was a Hitler, there was a Haman. And in order to seek about a good auspicious day for his planned ethnic cleansing, for his mass genocide, he will seek good fortune, and so he rolls poor. He, that's where we get the Purim from. He rolls dice. He casts dice, essentially in order to find a good, auspicious day. You see, Haman believes in a world ruled by chance. There is no God. The things that happen, happen by chance. And so he seeks good luck, good fortune for his genocide. And having found a day, he now goes to the king and watch how crafty he is. This wicked foe who seeks to work us woe, whose craft and power is great. You see, commentators have pointed out, when he begins to talk to the king, he starts with the truth and then adds a half-truth and finishes it off with a lie. He spins this web of words, all put together to connive the king. He says, there's a certain people that are scattered abroad and dispersed throughout your empire. Now, that's true. The Jewish people, the people of God, are scattered about. And yet even here, no specifics are given. He's asking for a mass genocide, but he doesn't actually say who. Because you know why? When you want to stir up hate and you want to stir up fear, it's best to speak in generalities. 
It's best to stay vague. The specifics can hurt you. Stereotypes are the best way to paint off a people. You don't want to know actual names. You don't want to know actual stories. You want to know actual faces. It's best to brush over a people with generalities and vague stereotypes. You see, these people, they're all around us. And they pose this imminent threat all over your kingdom, O great king. And then he couples that with a half-truth. And their laws are different from every other people. Meaning they're, they're not like everyone else. They're distinct. Sort of true. And yet not distinct enough that Mordecai wasn't an official in the royal administration or that Esther, his own queen, though he didn't know it, was his queen. And then he adds to it some lies. And these people do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. See, he's trying to stir and provoke paranoia. And he's painting this people of God as this dangerous group, this threat to the throne even though the king literally only has a pulse because of them. Literally, it's because of a Jew named Mordecai that the king is still alive, and yet he paints a picture to say to them, it's not to your prophet, O king, to tolerate them. And speaking of prophet, I will tell you what's to your prophet. I myself will deposit 10,000 talents of silver into your account, O king, once you give me the green light to exterminate them. Haman has unlimited resources. His craft and his power is great. And he amasses all of his craft and pulls together all of his power solely to eradicate God's people. If you listen carefully, you can almost hear a hiss as he speaks. This serpent, this master liar who knows how to spin half-truths and lies and weave them together in such a way that he's crafty and cunning enough to convince a king. In fact, that's exactly what you get. Verse 10 says, So the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And now with a blank check from the king to do as he wills, you'll see also that this enemy is armed with cruel hate. This enemy who seeks to work us woe, whose craft and power is great, is armed with cruel hate. I won't read it all for the sake of time, but if you look from verse 13 and following, you'll see that letters are sent throughout the edges of the empire. And their letters command in verse 13 that they are to do what? Destroy. And in case that's not clear, to kill. And in case that's not enough, to annihilate all the Jews. And in case you're not clear as to who the Jews are, both young and old, women and children. And how long should this go? In one day. On the 13th day of the 12th month, and as incentive to all the people in the empire to get this done, you are free to plunder them after you destroy them. So after you kill them, you can take everything that belongs to them. And the couriers went out with great haste, and they spread this word throughout the entire empire, from the bottom of Pakistan to the top of Sudan, everywhere it goes. And verse 15 says, And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Did you hear that? 
How comprehensive and cruel is the hatred of this enemy for the people of God that on the 13th day of the first month, an order goes out to not just kill, but to destroy and annihilate, and not just the Jews, but young and old, women and children, to plunder their goods, and it throws the entire empire and even the city closest to the king in utter chaos. And yet the passage ends with this chilling, cold word. You can picture the city of Susa, a holocaust has been ordered. You can imagine the citizens have been bewildered or beside themselves. Chaos abounds like a city burning behind you. And in the foreground, Haman and the king, they sit down together and they clink their glasses and they say cheers to one another and they sip on their wine. I mean, it's cold. It's chilling. While the city of Susa is reeling with the news of a holocaust, while the city has been thrown into confusion, while chaos abounds in the empire, these two powerful men sit down to sip on their wine. Some wrote, when Martin Luther wrote his hymn, he wasn't speaking about Haman. He wrote his hymn because there is a greater force of evil behind the Hamans of the world. In fact, this is how the Apostle Paul wrote it in the New Testament. He says in Ephesians 6, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Meaning that the testimony of the scriptures is our principal fight is not with the Hamans of the world. But rather there's something behind the flesh and blood. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, the testimony of the scriptures is that we, all the people of God, have an ancient foe who seeks to work us woe, whose craft and power is great, who is armed with cruel hate. You see, we say words like ancient because the witness of the scriptures is from the opening pages of the Bible. We read that there is an enemy of God aimed at God's people. You don't have to go any further than Genesis. You open to Genesis and by the third chapter, you're in a garden and there's this perfect world with this man and this woman. And in comes this crafty, conniving, hissing serpent snake. And he begins to twist words. Did God really say and as you put the picture together, as you keep reading the story of the scriptures, you begin to learn, though hazy, you learn that this all begins with a fallen angel who, with Haman-like pride, will not satisfy the thought that there should be any that does not bow to him and seeks to have the highest throne and so leads an insurrection against the king of heaven. And this fallen angel is cast down with his mutiny with him. And that this enemy, this snake, this serpent, this hissing one in the garden, he hates God and he takes out that hatred against God by taking it out on God's people. And he seeks to destroy them. And right from Genesis 3, 7 road, what we're told is that there will be a battle now. God comes to Eve and he says, from now on, the offspring that you have, will battle the offspring of this serpent. Meaning, there's an ancient battle 
with the family that belongs to God and a family that belongs to the serpent. And this battle is not only ancient, but we use words like crafty. We say crafty because Jesus said, here's the testimony of Jesus, speaking about the devil in John 8, 44. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See what Jesus says about the devil? That there's an evil one who lies because lying is his mother tongue. He's, it's, it's his native language. He speaks out of who he is. In fact, truth would be a second language that he does not know. Because there is no truth in him. He has no honesty. He speaks out of his character. And part of what he does is to blind and to deceive and to close your eyes from seeing the truth. In fact, this is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, the testimony of the scriptures would be, here's what the evil one does. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, in their case, the God of this world, speaking of the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In fact, I want you to bear in mind, if you will, the man who wrote this, and this is not an easy verse, the man who wrote this had a Haman-like hatred for the people of God. It was a man named Paul, or his Hebrew name was Saul. And Saul went to the edges of the world to try and eliminate and eradicate everyone who belonged to Jesus. He had a Haman-like hatred. He was not going to stop until every person who followed Christ would be locked up or put to death. And yet, the testimony of the scriptures is that when Jesus came to this Saul Paul, suddenly, literally, scales fell from his eyes and he could see the truth. So that now he could be the one to write that the God of this age, that is the serpent from Haman, the serpent from the garden, has blinded eyes to keep people from seeing the glory of God in the gospel and in the face of Jesus Christ. We say words like we have a powerful enemy who seeks to destroy us because here's the testimony of scriptures. Listen to 1 Peter verse 5, chapter 5, verse 8. It says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is that the witness of the scriptures is you have an enemy who licks his lips and salivates at the thought of tearing you apart and devouring your soul. Like a lion licking its lips over prey, so you have an enemy who does so over your soul. Seven Mile Road, the testimony of history is that behind the Hamans of the world, there is a force. Ephesians called it cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. There is a force in the world that is bent on destroying God's people and thwarting God's purposes and plans if it could. You see, Haman wasn't the first, and he wouldn't be the last. Before Haman, there was a pharaoh. Another paranoid king who saw the people of God as posing a threat to his throne and his empire and in, in response orders the slaughter of them all. All the Hebrew sons are to be thrown into the Nile. And there would be Haman's after Haman as well. In fact, you just have to ask some of the first Christians of the first century. 
the first century Christians would have told you that the Roman Empire and the Caesars had labeled them as atheists. They were peculiar because they didn't have shrines like everyone else had. and They didn't have temples. They didn't have visible gods, so you couldn't make out a religion, and so they were dubbed as atheists. Or more than that, they were called cannibals. Why? Because they gather each week and they speak of eating the body and drinking the blood of this man, Jesus Christ. And they labeled them as peculiar. They labeled them as different. They labeled them as opposing a threat to the empire. And it was no longer in the emperor's interest to tolerate them. And soon enough, therefore, they were fed to lions and lit as human torches in Caesar's gardens. And listen, this is not ancient history. We're in God's providence, kept somewhat far removed, but brothers and sisters all around the world would tell us that to this very day, the world is a very dangerous place for a believer, and it is often not in the best interest of the powers that be to tolerate the people of God. In fact, the statistics say something like persecution in this last century has exceeded all the centuries before it combined. I mean, we only need to look at brothers and sisters in other parts of the world to know this world has a darkness that is bent on destroying God's people. Behind the story of Haman, there is a great power at work to destroy the people of God, even you and me. But take heart. For behind the story of Esther, there is an even greater power at work to save God's people. There's a power at work in the world to destroy God's people, but behind that, there is an even greater power at work to save God's people. Let me say this and I'll be done. The second thing I want you to hear from this text is this. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we need not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. That is the longest point of a sermon in the history of sermons, I know. But being that I stole the first one from Luther's hymn, it's fitting that I steal this one as well. Brothers and sisters, take heart. For what Luther wrote for us to sing is true. The world is filled with devils, and it is filled with Hamans, and it is filled with Pharaohs and Caesars, and it is filled with people who will hate you because you belong to God or because you believe in Jesus. It is filled with a culture that is opposed to the gospel and a prince of darkness who threatens over it all to undo us. But take heart. We need not fear. For God will triumph and hath willed even to triumph through us. And moreover, lo, behold, the doom of our enemy is sure. You see, you'll have to read all of Esther to see what happens to Haman, but I can promise you it is unbelievably good, satisfyingly good. But listen, there are hints of it already. Hints of it already. You see, God promised what? As soon as you met Saul's son and Agag's son, you're reminded of an old promise. God promised, I will be at war with the people who are at war with my people from generation to generation. So here's the question. Do we have a God who keeps his promise? Do we have the kind of God who can keep his promise? What about, will he keep his promise if the people are no longer in the land? 
Will he still keep his promise? What about if they're in exile? Will he still keep his promise? What about if after some people went back home, some of them stayed back in pagan Persia? Do his promises apply even then and there? I mean, or what if all of this is because they sinned? What if the reason they're not in the land and they're in exile, and they're in Persia, is because of their sin. Will he keep his promises even in the face of his people's sin? I mean, that's the question. Will God keep his promises to his people when his people haven't kept their promises to him? Will he keep his word when his people haven't kept theirs? Will he be committed to us when we haven't been committed to him? Do his promises find its way all the way when we're far away from him and far away from his people? In fact, isn't that what Austin reminded us in the call to worship? Do we have a God who is faithful in the face of our faithlessness? What manner of God is the God over Esther? And ultimately, friends, the witness of the scriptures is the kind of God we have is most clearly seen in Jesus Christ. The testimony of the scriptures is, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning your faithfulness was not a precondition for God to deliver you. Your fitness wasn't qualifying you for him to rescue and redeem you. While we were still sinners, meaning while we were in Persia, while we were far away from him, while we had wandered away from his covenant, God still sent Jesus to rescue us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or consider this. There's, in fact, even this great little detail in the story. Do you know that the edict goes out? When does it go out? I hadn't seen this until some friends that we were studying Esther together pointed this out. When does the edict go out? The text says it went out on the 13th day of the first month. Now you think of this. Out of all the days in the year that it kind of went out, 365 different options for it to go out. It happens to go out on the 13th day of the first month. And every Jewish person who was reading this story for the first time would have said, wait a minute. Because that was the day before Passover. Meaning that on the very next morning, it's precisely when all the people of God would have been gathering to remember what? We were once in the tyranny and under the thumb of the most powerful empire and king in the world. And we had no ability to save ourselves, and the sentence of death was on us. And we had no hope and no help, and God came. And God rescued, and God delivered. Isn't it something that out of all the days, it was that day? It's sort of like if, if Britain announced that it was going to invade America on July 3rd, You'd go, out of all the days, isn't that something? I mean, it'd be awful, but wouldn't the next morning remind us, we've sort of seen this before, and we've seen what can happen. Out of all days, the threat of the world comes on the day before Passover. You know why? Because a man can cast lots, but Proverbs says it's the Lord that determines where the dice ends up. Out of all the days, it just so happens this day. You see, there's a hidden hero in the book of Esther. And ultimately, the witness of the Bible is that that hidden hero reveals himself supremely in Jesus Christ. That what the entire book of Esther is, it's a shadow 
that's preparing you for and pointing you to Jesus Christ. We've said this before, but, but think of it with me again. What's a shadow? It's, it's like if you're a little one, a little child, picture a little child in a grocery store holding mom's hand. And she's in a grocery store and she sees this cereal and she runs off and loses track of mom. Looks all around, mom's nowhere to be seen. Can you imagine the panic that would flood that little one's heart? Looks here, looks there, can't find mom. And as she's about to let out a scream or as she's about to run for her life, all of a sudden imagine her seeing the shadow of one that looks like mom turning around the corner of the aisle. Suddenly that heart that was full of panic begins to flutter with hope. Could it be? And now a shadow is great, but what's even greater is when mom actually turns the corner and you see her. You see, a shadow's good. Mom is better. Esther's great. Jesus is better. Because Esther was set up to point you to a shadow that was coming. In fact, that's what all the scriptures were doing, is pointing to what God was supremely going to do through Jesus Christ. You see, it's from the first page. Genesis, God speaks to Eve and says what? Your family and the serpent's family are going to battle. And the offspring of yours and the offspring of his will battle. But, what does he say? There's going to be one offspring in particular. Genesis 3, verse 15. One child in particular. One son. And the serpent will bruise his heel, but this son will crush the serpent's head. It comes down to one child. Or then, you read of Abraham, what Austin reminded us at the beginning of the service. And God promises to Abraham, through you, Abram, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. But this offspring will culminate to one offspring, one child, through whom the nations will be blessed. Or then you think of David. The promise to David, the oath to David is, David, your line will continue forever. But the oath crystallizes, there's going to be one son of yours. That will have an everlasting throne whose reign will never come to an end. And no matter what the pharaohs do, and no matter what the Hamans do, and no matter what the serpent does to try and stop that offspring, that people, and that son from being born, God is committed to saving his people. God is committed to saving us not just from the Hamans of the world, but greater enemies like sin and Satan and hell. So that when you cross over from Malachi and you open to Matthew chapter 1, you hear of the birth of a son. And listen, from the hour that that son named Jesus was born, a serpent was after him. What do we remember at the Christmas time story? We remember that when Jesus was born, a Haman-like king named Herod, who was paranoid that some wise men wanted to bow to someone other than him, in order to try and get at the one Jew he was after, ordered the slaughter of them all. And suddenly the city of Bethlehem was thrown into chaos and confusion because the serpent was after this one. And then as Jesus grows, the testimony of the scriptures is that he is attacked and opposed all the time. In fact, Matthew 4 says that literally Jesus has a showdown with the devil in the desert. And what does that ancient foe ask Jesus to do in the wilderness? Except to bow, to bow down in front of him. And when Jesus refuses, suddenly the powers of hell and the powers of the world, every bit of Rome's empire and even the people of God all coalesce to not just destroy, but to kill and to annihilate Jesus Christ. And the testimony of the scriptures is, 
God had come to his people, and his people didn't recognize him, didn't know him, didn't receive him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were far away from him, when we remembered him no more, Christ died for us. And if you'll be a follower of Jesus, the invitation of the scriptures is, then you'll follow exactly in this same storyline as well. This is the storyline of the people of God. The storyline of the people of God means if you belong to him, you'll be hated by the world. It means you put a bullseye on your chest, and now the enemy of God now seeks to destroy you as well. It means that you too, like your Savior, will follow him in suffering and in death. But it also means that like him, you will rise from the dead, and you will be set free from the greatest of all enemies, even your sin and the serpent and hell. This is the good news offered in Jesus Christ. I stole two lines from Luther. It's fitting that I close by stealing one more. Here's the point of everything we're saying. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Listen, we're no match for the Hamans of this world. We're no match for the Caesars or the Pharaohs or the Herods. We're no match for Satan. We're no match for our sin. We're no match for hell. If we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, meaning we need somebody. We need a Mordecai. We need an Esther. We need someone better than Esther. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Let's pray together. God, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you'd open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our minds to understand and our hearts to receive the good news that is offered to us through your word. We pray that even in this story that we might see that there are forces at work in the world to keep the people of God destroyed, to annihilate, to kill. But we pray also that we would remember we have a faithful God who keeps his promises even when we are faithless, who has worked while we were far away to bring us near, even through Jesus Christ. Come help us to believe this and to live this. We ask and pray. Amen.